Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Paolo Shakarian of Arizona State University. Paolo, welcome to the show. A pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you, Sean. Paolo, I wonder if you could do a quick introduction in terms of your experience in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah, so... um... You know, I actually started my career um, in the military. I worked intelligence. And after my second tour in Iraq, I had a really unique opportunity back in 07 to spend time at DARPA. And I was, you know, my job there at DARPA uh, was just to be an advisor, you know, kind of bring recent field experience uh, to the program managers. Um, And one thing that really was quite amazing i got to be involved with was what was called the urban challenge and this was a large-scale experiment where uh, universities and research organizations from all over their country took autonomous vehicles to an uh, old air force base uh, to test them and this was back in 2007 so this was really the first major test of autonomous vehicles um, in a you know real world urban style environment and after that, I was really inspired. There was, I was also seeing applications of AI and machine learning to, uh, you know, intelligence and uh, counterinsurgency, which was, I was at the time, you know, that was my job. So I was really excited about those kind of issues. So after DARPA, I uh, went back to grad school. I studied at the University of Maryland, uh, earned my doctorate focused on AI. Uh, fast forwarding a little bit, I then, um, Uh, later on got a faculty position at Arizona State um, in which, you know, we did a lot of work looking at um, both machine learning and more traditional symbolic artificial intelligence, how these can work together and how these could make impact in a variety of uh, applied use cases. Fantastic. I mean, a phenomenal background. And I think, um, Paolo, as we enter into this new age, and uh, and one of the the kind of the predecessor elements to our discussion was, uh, you know, we'd reached out and we're talking about, you know, chat GTP3, it's made such an impact and and there's a lot of buzz uh, really around it. But when we break it down, we're looking at underlying uh, large language models. I wonder if you could maybe give a general overview of both in their current utility, and then I think we want to expand into a elements of their applications in cybersecurity, both positive and negative? Yeah, so um, the large language models has been, you know, honestly, a a quite incredible development. And I've seen this evolution over a period of years. And, you know, large language models are also based in deep learning. And, you know, for those of you who aren't aware in the audience, Um, machine learning before deep learning focused on other methods. Uh, So really prior to 2012, you saw things more like 
support vector machines, uh, random forests and, and variants of that. A lot of those things are still around, um, but clearly deep learning has come to dominate beginning with uh, the applications to image recognition in 2012. In 2016, uh, researchers at Google Brain introduced a new idea in deep learning, which was a way to rewire the uh, networks in a way to support language tasks. And this was called the transformer architecture. Now, this architecture was so effective for language tasks that we saw it go from research paper to applied use cases in, in just a couple of years. Um, I was, uh, you know, I took some time off from my university job to uh, work at a startup company. And we started using transformer models like late 2018 uh, for, you know, tasks and extracting information uh, that we were collecting to make uh, cybersecurity related predictions. Uh, we got like tremendous boost out of that and the tools we were using were already had a very high level of maturity. Um, one thing about deep learning in general that wasn't true about prior uh, machine learning methods was that by increasing the size of the model and the amount of data used to train the model, you could almost arbitrarily improve accuracy. And this is why companies like Google and Facebook and OpenAI have invested a lot of money in creating models that have, you know, literally billions of parameters uh, that are learned from large amounts of data. So ChatGPT being one of them. Um, so seeing ChatGPT being released, this is the latest um, or one of the latest iterations of these large language models, uh, you know, obviously one of the best things about it is it you know, um, mimics human language in a very eerie way. Um, it gets a lot of things right in terms of uh, kind of, you know, the use of uh, grammar and the use of words. Um, but there's also some drawbacks because uh, for some reasons I can go into maybe a little later, um, you know, all deep learning or almost all deep learning models are are, end up mimicking their training data. And one kind of issue is they don't have like a deeper understanding of what's happening in that data like humans do. And, and this, I think, uh, can lead to some issues. Well, absolutely. I think it leads to elements of, um, and I'll use this term, and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but there's an element of either underlying poisoning through the data set in order to train a specific, let me call it bias, within the understanding. But then also it's um, those managed responses. And I think there's, you know, as we look at the utility, it is maybe now where maybe too much trust and there could be elements of misinformation, disinformation coming through that. Is that, uh, is that true, um, Paolo? Do you, do you see that as being uh, an element in terms of uh, the utility uh, of the respective technology? Oh, yeah, I think these are, you know, really important issues. Um, I think uh, in terms of level of trust, you have a system in ChatGPT and also, you know, similar large language models like the, the variant used in the new Bing. They 
are so good at mimicking language, they can convince people that they're maybe sentient or maybe they have knowledge that they don't. And one of the things about it is that one of the reasons they do well at mimicking language is they're using, you know, all this training data to kind of, you know, fill in the blanks in ways that, you know, flow well and are conversational. But in doing that, it's not differentiating between, say, fiction and nonfiction. It's not differentiating between things that could, you know, fit in the conversation well, even if they're totally false. And so you have things like what the New York Times reporter a couple of weeks ago had, where he's having a conversation with ChatGPT, and it starts telling him, you know, some really off the wall things like, uh, you don't love your spouse, or, um, you know, I have thoughts like this. The model wasn't trying to convince the user to leave his spouse. It wasn't having thoughts about doing um, you know, hacking or dangerous things. It, it's not capable of that. It's not even capable of having those thoughts. It's not something like, you know, me and you, if we were to plan a bank robbery, we'd sit down together and we'd come up with a plan and we'd think through all the contingencies and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's not capable of doing that. It's essentially, it's telling a story and it's just doing stuff from text. And that's, I think, where the danger lies, because in many cases, you know, it will do this um, and there's there's uh, no basis in fact. And some of the users of the new Bing have been remarking on this as well, that it will say things that didn't even come up in the search that the system did to back up what's in the large language models, just filling in the gaps with just additional stuff, even if they're not true. Yeah, I mean, I think it then gets to, um, and it, it's a point taken in terms of underlying information operations, as it were, as an underlying threat, because we get um, these elements of both truth and accuracy that can be altered, changed in terms of building, as you mentioned, either inconsistency or accuracy, maybe not at the level that we would be expecting in terms of me and you having a conversation. And so when we get to that point, though, I think there's, an, you know, this ultimate threat of this disinformation. And I, in my mind, and again, respectfully uh, to your research and knowledge here is that we're scaling a capability in these information operation type elements. So um, let's say we're coming and utilizing a, a large language model in terms of building a, a troll capability. Um, you know, I think we've discussed a Russian troll farm, right? And, and setting uh, necessarily up uh, the element of success in that space because of the underlying convincing in terms of both the language and it's the semantics of it being used uh, in order to go past what, you know, what we may have seen in the past, which is a poor use uh, of, you know, of a second language from a respective um, advanced persistent threat or respective nation state. I think it's kind of leveling up. Um, so we've, we've uh, got better um, armed adversaries. Is that tracking in any way with you, Paolo? I would agree. Uh, I think that it drastically reduces the cost to generate content that, you know, doesn't have any type of restrictions in terms of truth. 
And if you understand what, uh, how information operations work for things like, you know, Russian troll farms, where they hire a lot of people, they have them work in some nondescript building, going to blogs and taking on multiple personas and just by hand generating content that is uh, pushing toward some narrative or not even that, just countering every other narrative that's out there. Uh, likewise, we've also seen things from Islamic extremists uh, that you know use a, a similar technique where they're they're trying to just spread you know information maybe to discredit um, you know certain countries or certain organizations or certain governments, and a lot of times uh, these information operations are are launched in kind of a decentralized manner where they, they don't have a lot of attribution to a single source. And if there is, let's say, you know, one piece of truth coming from an organization like the US government, and there is say 200 different fake stories that are countering it in different ways, um, you know, the idea it's almost like phishing is hoping that some of your audience grabs on one of those stories. And then if you have the ability to scale that in an arbitrary way, using something like a large language model uh, that poses a, a big danger. So how do we overcome that? We have models that are purposely designed to sound like humans. Um, it's very difficult to then um, differentiate between what a human has produced and what the model has produced. And meanwhile, the model, you know, the model's main fault, which is it may have inaccuracies actually becomes almost a feature for uh, these type of operations. So it as uh, you know, uh, I think this is probably the single uh, most concerning thing in the near term about these large language models is the ability to scale information operations. And I think some people that are doing research on ability to detect this ability to detect when something's produced by such a model, I think that's, you know, uh, from a security perspective, some of the most important research going on in the area. Absolutely agree. I think it's, um, to your point, it, it's now the detection uh, of those types of constructs in order to realize, and I, I think it goes to uh, some of the deep fake type work that's also been going on, both from um, audio and visual is there, uh, you know, there's a need to detect because ultimately it's the... Uh, uh, the proliferation and plus we also have representatively now an infrastructure that allows dissemination of this information at will right i mean to millions and millions uh, of respective people so scams fake news misinformation i mean underlying the element of the credibility in what is being sent is you know going through necessarily um a person reading is you know it's like they're reading it from a representative person and it's just compelling in some cases and the generation i think of that type of information uh, i think again is is just multiplied in a lot of cases so then it's um 
really, uh, again, a community response uh, in terms of uh, protecting those that, you know, may be reading such information, or in some cases, this could be uh, harmful uh, in terms of the underlying content. And we, uh, you know, need to build an underlying filtering capability to now filter uh, a very complex and a very um, convincing um, uh, language model that uh, really uh, sets the tone. I think there's both good and bad in, in any technology in this space. And I think it's um, then as we look at both the intelligence side uh, and the underlying operationalization of such a technology, you know, I think there's elements that also uh, introduce some advantages um, but one of the, uh, as we start to look at this then as, you know, a deployable capability in the defensive space or uh, information operations, threat intelligence, things of that nature. Um, ultimately, uh, Paolo, I believe there's an underlying cost. I, I don't think these large language models are free. Uh, and I think in order to get one that's as effective, uh, and I'll reference chat GTP3 here or 3.5, um, I think there's an underlying um, overhead to uh, that capability. Is that true? Oh, I would definitely um, agree there. And this is, I think, consequences in a couple different ways. You know, I think the first thing we need to consider is, is going back to a remark I made earlier about deep learning in general. One of the really important things that deep learning revealed is by adding more data and more parameters, I could get better performance in terms of things like accuracy. Okay. And this is really quite incredible. And I don't think can't be understated because when I was getting my PhD, it was regarded that in machine learning, you could only get to a certain point, normally around, you know, an 85% accuracy before you kind of hit a wall with your existing method. And then everything else to get beyond that, you'd have to do a bunch of like engineering tricks. And, and that was the limit to where machine learning itself could push you. Deep learning taught us something different. Um, you can just, you know, in general, to a point, you can arbitrarily just add more stuff, add more layers, add more uh, parameters, add more data, and you get improved performance. And this is why we have large language models being created, which you can regard in some ways as it's a brute force approach to language. They're, you know, yes, they do nice algorithmic techniques like the use of transformers. But at the end of the day, these companies like uh, Google and OpenAI and Meta, they are investing an awful lot in hardware and an awful lot in things like electricity just to train these models. and. You know, some estimates for ChatGPT's predecessor, GPT-3, uh, estimated it cost about $4 million just to train the model, uh, which is pretty incredible because you have to think about, well, they have to pay, you know, some really top-notch people to work on this stuff. They probably have a lot of overhead for things like data, and they've probably had some prototype models that weren't free to train those as well even if they're smaller, if it still costs a few hundred thousand dollars to train a model, I mean, that's not a trivial amount of money. You could hire like, you know, five people for that. So, so thinking about all these things, well, what does that imply? Well, if you want to get at least today, some of the state of the art performance, 
you have to use a model that's maybe created by someone else. And so now we are looking at like a software supply chain issue. Now we can argue that there's always been software supply chain issues, right? Everyone uses libraries and packages and stuff. No one's building anything, you know, from square one, but the threat surface in a large language model is much different. Whereas maybe with a standard piece of software, you could do fuzzing on a set of discrete inputs. Here, your inputs are language. And so there's all kinds of different things that you can throw at it. So I'll give you an example. We, we did this study in, in my research group that we recently really released. And we had this data set that's not, we didn't make it up, it's a standard data set of about a thousand uh, math word problems. And we want to see how ChatGPT did on that. So, uh, you know, my students tried two different experiments, one in which they first said, hey, here's the problem. Tell us the answer, but don't show any of your work. Just give us the numbers. And the reason we did this is we were doing this at scale. So, you know, we didn't want to have a bunch of extra stuff producing the result. And so ChatGPT does this. And 84% of the time in that experiment, ChatGPT totally failed. It got none of the, not even anything that could be regarded as partially right. Even if we let it round the answers and all that, 84% of the time, there was no way we could say it was right. When we went back and under about the same conditions, when we removed that additional prompt and we just had the problem and we let it show its work, uh, that failure rate dropped from 84% to 20%. And this is just omitting like, you know, two, three sentences that if I'm telling this to you as a human would not change how you do math. So this is a this is a vulnerability of one type. And this is not counting all the things like, you know, maybe relating to bias or other problems involving um, any kind of uh, reasoning skill, you know, what happens and not to mention things like non-determinism in the results. And so by using software from someone else that is trained on data, you know, we have to understand precisely how that's being integrated with a larger system. Uh, what are, you know, we as a community need to develop ways to test that and be able to profile that so we know what we're getting into. And I'm not saying that can't be done, and I'm certainly not disputing the capabilities of these models. I think I think it's actually extremely promising because I could imagine a world where in a real world system, you know, even like looking at something like cyber, if I can start talking to things in natural language and it coming back to me with some things to do, that's incredibly useful. There's already people using that for, uh, you know, certain coding tasks. But at the same token, we need to understand, you know, when that's failing and maybe think about having mechanisms around where you enter the prompt, um, especially for given use cases, how to uh, address some of these, uh, you know, vulnerabilities on this very large attack surface. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think it, it, you make a number of um, 
really salient points there. And I think it's, um, I think there's both the um, threat of the capability, but then also its utility in a lot of cases. And, you know, like you mentioned, that the new Bing, as it were, starting to integrate an element of this capability through um, the, the chat functionality. It, it makes a lot of sense. And then it seems, as you mentioned, supply chain, it's, um, you know, where is the inherent trust coming from? Underlying you know, re representatively the data, representatively the model that's being built in terms of the number of layers and, and things of that nature in terms of uh, the neural network and, uh, the, as you mentioned, the underlying transformer is, um, it's just very interesting in terms of now deciphering truth between uh, what I believe will become a competitive space, even with the barrier of cost to entry. I think there are a number of organizations that in terms of the, the successful continuation of that representative organization have to invest in the space or ultimately, you know, um, we could call it white labeling other models to bring into their respective product to add this capability. Um, at this point, Paolo, do you believe that we've, um, uh, with the release of uh, kind of this open phase of ChatGTP3, um, that we've um, kind of seen, you know, we're, we're on the edge of something new that representatively our um, method of gathering, disseminating, and understanding representative information has fundamentally changed? And do we in order to keep pace with that as both uh, from my perspective in cybersecurity and others have to understand that as a potential threat vector, but also another element of a part of the technology stack that we should integrate and utilize so that necessarily I'm not writing SQL, I'm writing clear language as it were in order to assess you know, events within my uh, security incident and event management system. Um, how's that tracking with you at this moment, Paolo? Yeah, I think in terms, you know, first on, on the vulnerability piece, you know, I think that we should be um, very thoughtful as a community and actually as both the AI and security communities need to think about this very carefully is what constitutes a vulnerability to such a model? So, you know, are we going to have something like, you know, CVEs for large language models? And if so, what would be the criteria for what would constitute a CVE? So would what we found with math problems, would that constitute a CVE or is this something else? And then the other thing to consider is, you know, oftentimes with software vulnerabilities, you have a vulnerability for a system, but it's rooted in something that is a component. And I think we're going to see this um, with, you know, with things like these models like ChatGPT, where the context in the larger system they appear create, have the potential to create composite vulnerabilities. So getting to your SQL example, right? Let's say we want to move away from using SQL and using natural language, which I think is actually we're probably extremely close to that happening. Um, and, and there's some reasons for that, right? I mean, like, you know, there, I think there's less people who are learning SQL in school because of, you know, other types of database technologies out there that use things like, you know, JSON uh, document stores and stuff like that. So you're probably going to have less SQL people. 
this is going, you still have a ton of SQL infrastructure, you know, especially in like finance and stuff like that. And so how do you interface with that in a way, you know, very rapidly? Well, so large language models is a great candidate for that and has shown great promise already in other code generation tasks. So why not? Well, um, if that's the case, we have to understand, you know, when are there changes to how you enter information that might cause the uh, SQL uh, to look like uh, something that's different than what's intended. So there's like that, um, you know, so there's a bit of that going on where you have to watch out for. And will being able to ask something in language um, because it can allow you to do kind of arbitrarily complex queries, would that allow an attacker to more easily identify vulnerabilities? Because think about it, if I have a SQL database today and I need, you know, and, and it's overall pretty secure, but maybe if I have some extremely long and complex query uh, that someone took like, you know, six months to engineer, yeah, maybe I'm vulnerable to that. If I can come up with that long, huge query in 10 minutes using a large language model, now I have to think of security a bit differently than I have in the past. Maybe there's new types of injections that now can become possible. And this is what I mean by composite vulnerabilities that have to be considered. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. No, I think that's, uh, I think you actually, it enters into really a new realm of vulnerability classification in, in terms of, uh, you know, language vulnerability, like you mentioned, the uh, ability to generate a long form query through that process and representatively going through parameterization and understanding representatively the query and its interpretation um, is another method of inject. I think that's a uh, fantastic element. And you also mentioned CVEs. It, it may be that there's a new classification system that's required in this space in order to collate these thoughts. And uh, it leads me to some work um, I believe through uh, MITRE, I think they're looking at this um, through the adversarial threat landscape, adversarial threat landscape for artificial intelligence systems. I believe ATLAS is the acronym uh, in that space. Sorry, I had to uh, <laughs> decipher the acronym as it were. I, I should have just asked ChatGTP, but uh, anyway, I'll go from memory. Um, and so we're looking at these elements and I absolutely concur with your thoughts here that is uh, there's new boundaries being opened but I also think the velocity in terms of which those boundaries will be exploited again it is is factors uh, faster uh, in this space with uh, these representative uh, models it, I think it's a uh, um, and again, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that we've maybe lowered the barrier of entry representatively both from um, those coming into the field of cybersecurity and really representatively other fields, but also we've reduced that boundary as well for those that are um, adversaries in this space and the utility may um, enhance um, a representative skill set. It seems like maybe our the skill set adjustment in a lot of spaces in terms of uh, what we will be training on in the future uh, as these technologies become um, ultimately integrated. Because I don't really see us 
uh, turning back and saying, no, that seems like a bad idea. I think it's um, given its emergence and uh, the vast number of people utilizing this capability, it, it seems like it's um, really here to stay in a lot of cases. And we're, we're going to have to adapt to it versus it maybe adapting to us. I mean, I think we've seen similar evolutions in the past in cybersecurity. Um, you know, the rise of, you know, HTTP, um, the rise of web-facing databases, I think provided uh, similar challenges in the past. Although at the time when those things came up, there were, you know, several orders of magnitude fewer users. Um, I think like with many things with cybersecurity, you know, cybersecurity um, engineers and scientists tend to become like a jack of all trades. And I think what you're going to see probably happen with cybersecurity is you're going to see um, a little bit of uh, more of an AI and ML skill set, maybe kind of bleed into there. Uh, I don't think people in cybersecurity are going to need to know um, a lot of the specific science behind some of these models, but I do think they will need to understand the basics of the conditions upon which it are training, the basic properties of it, what these things can and can't do. And I also think that cybersecurity professionals looking to address these problems are going to need to understand AI and machine learning from an engineering and operational perspective. And there's a lot of people who do research in AI and ML who don't even have a full appreciation of that. Um, a lot of the operational and engineering perspectives, um, really um, the people who, who know that best are the people who are running these systems in companies that are providing you know, some kind of service and who have a lot of pressure on them to deliver, you know, make sure those systems are delivering timely and accurate results. And so, um, I think that kind of knowledge is also going to be really key in managing this new threat surface as a community. Exactly, exactly. Now, it actually leads me to another area of review is, um, uh, I think we'll term it the black box, black box nature of these large language models. And in some cases, and I, I just want to reflect on your uh, previous statement, because uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, you know, this, this jack of all trades requirement needs us to lead into a um, ML AI data science element because of the, uh, the utility of data it is obviously changing, and the the um, the management, distribution, storage, and ultimately the output of respective systems. Um, introduce new capabilities that I think as a, a trained or at least an aware respective person in the field of, uh, and we'll focus on cybersecurity for this uh, portion here, is um, really representative of this uh, element of abstraction. I think there's uh, a need to understand, but uh, again, I'm uh, not to the levels of necessarily your understanding, but uh, again, what is it that we're doing with this capability? How is it being integrated? But then ultimately, there are still vulnerabilities, even through this uh, black box element of large language models, in understanding, um, respectively, the accuracy or the output of a representative confusion matrix in order to understand 
what are we seeing the benefit here of introducing a capability in this space? Uh, and are we seeing necessarily the payback um, through both its utility and, uh, as we mentioned before, the underlying cost to integrate? It, it seems those are going to be um, either challenges we face um, knowledgeable about this, or we move so fast because it's the, you know, representatively uh, the next shiny thing that we want to integrate as quickly as possible uh, and forget any of the, you know, the uh, uh, layers of knowledge that we have to get to understand why we're integrating it. It just, it, it seems like a good idea. Uh, I think that may be um, elements that need to be considered um, kind of across a number of different business units or representatively those businesses looking to utilize the capability in this space. Are we waiting for maturity and uh, representatively the lessons learned of the introduction of, as you mentioned, again, the web and uh, the internet and uh, email and those things? Are we going to use those lessons learned to make sure we don't make the same mistakes and Ultimately, I feel there may be a velocity and, and uh, integration of this technology that might surpass our need to uh, learn from the past in order to get the functionality of the future integrated as quickly as possible. What do you think? So I think abstraction, of course, is, I think, a really key concept here um, and is, is fundamental in a number of ways. Because at the end of the day, uh, as we've seen with the difference between ChatGPT and the new Bing, where the new Bing is using essentially, a, you know, a, a better language model than ChatGPT, but still the same base underlying technology. You know, what's the difference between the two? Well, I can go to Google, do searches, copy and paste results from those searches, go to my ChatGPT window, throw that in, tell it to summarize and stuff like that. I can make it do that which is roughly the same capability as the new Bing. But what I just described takes me about, you know, five to 10 times longer to do one time than it would to be go right to Bing. And what I use this example with students to say, to remind them that say, hey, you know, AI and machine learning capabilities, they exist in a context and exist in a larger system. And so Bing is kind of a nice example to talk about that because what else is going on? Well, there's, you know, uh, a large uh, query action that is information retrieval that has uh, n is not directly related to the large language model. You can still use Bing without the LLM, um, just normal. And Bing is also, or I'm sorry, the LLM is also queuing Bing to make searches. So there's an interface issue and there's a totally separate task, but that information retrieval um, task has to be uh, modified on the on the uh, edge cases to work with the large language model, both on taking that input, sending it to uh, Bing, and then taking the results from Bing, putting it back in the large language model, presenting it to users. At those seams, there's opportunities for vulnerabilities. And someone looking at this from a systems perspective can start to think of you know, the large language model is a black box, but understand sort of the form and function of that black box. And even in this example, we see two different areas. We see the area from conversion of the natural language into the queries, and we see the conversion of the query results into a summarized paragraph for the user. 
And these are the same, this is the same model, but it's now being used in two entirely different use cases. And so there's um, a, you know, different set of vulnerabilities with each, different inputs and outputs for each, and different ways to evaluate each of those. So, and that's another big thing. How do we develop evaluations and test cases for this type of technology in a, a suitable manner? Abstraction is important for another reason, though, that's specific to deep learning. And that is that deep learning is inherently a black box method uh, with a couple exceptions, namely in the uh, neurosymbolic area, which I've been doing some work on. Um, outside of that, which is extremely new and most of it's still on the research side, deep learning models, especially these more commercialized things, they're entirely black boxed. And the reason is, is that what is being trained at the end of the day is one very large function. And no one can really easily interpret a function that has a billion parameters. That's not realistic. If it was a simple linear function with a slope and intercept, we can talk about that very easily. But it's not, you know, a billion parameter function is, is just not interpretable uh, in any kind of reasonable manner. And so now what you're faced with is, this gets back to the issue of test cases, is to understand what's going on, we have to almost be evaluating it empirically. And we have to look at, I give it this kind of input, what sort of output does it get me? And that, um, you know, that essentially is what we did in this small experiment where we sent it a thousand math problems. But think of the limitations of my study. You know, I had a thousand math problems that came from the certain data set. And if I'm a company like OpenAI or Google and I'm training one of these, well, of course, at some point in time, I'm going to go and grab that data set myself and use it for evaluation. So how do we test boundaries of something if everyone is kind of using the same data and these big companies, they have enough manpower and smart people where they're going to you know, grab every conceivable data set out there. And so that also makes evaluation tough. So how do we red team that appropriately? And this is, again, getting back to the discussion of vulnerabilities. Um, I think the big way that this differs from past generations is uh, due to the use of language is the attack surface is not something that you can start probing with you know, something like, you know, fuzzing of discrete inputs like you can in so many other things. Um, and you have to think of, well, how can I form those inputs using natural language? Do I have intuitions as to ways of crafting natural language that can uh, form malicious inputs that would uh, and also be generalizable into a large portion of the attack surface that then I can implement controls around either I'm a company like OpenAI making the model itself or someone employing the model like Microsoft and putting guardrails around. And so these are tricky things. And I think that there's probably still a lot of work that needs to be done to understand that. All that said, I think companies that are employing this, I think just being aware that these are issues is going to help them overcome a lot of the low hanging fruit style attacks which will be the first generation of attacks against these things that we'll, we'll see, I believe. And so, you know, um, I think 
hopefully the lessons from that security have taught us about deploying things on the internet uh, have resonated with people who make decisions to uh, deploy large language models and things like products. Absolutely. No, and I, I think it, it aligns to both the supply chain and it's another topic we've been talking about on this podcast. Um, I'm really coming from um, presidential type approaches to national security is, you know, ultimately it's not on the end user the responsibility, but moving that back to the organizations, the corporations in terms of this capability. So I, I do believe, um, and to many of the points that you've made, there's a responsibility in the deployment of these models, but then also, you know, caution for those that are utilizing these representative models in terms of both their use and uh, underlying functionality. I don't think it's a uh, an element of, oh, we've solved a complete set of problems. I think they're tools that are aiders uh, in representatively managing representative problems in, in many different spaces and topics. Uh, and it leads me as we uh, uh, look towards the conclusion of this representative podcast, uh, Paolo, are you cautiously optimistic about our future in this space? Is it, uh, I've been waiting for this, this is, this is what I've trained, this is what I've learned, I'm, I'm happy that now it has this massive public discourse and I'm able to then represent the capabilities in the space to wider uh, audiences, or is it... Um, We've, uh, you know, we, we've got to do this judiciously. It, it's great that this exists, but it's uh, it needs to be implemented thoughtfully. Uh, what are your thoughts for the future, uh, both in the space and uh, your approach to uh, the mass media, as it were, uh, around LLMs? So I think on balance, I think the mass media is a good thing because, and and I I also think. Um, just my personal opinion, uh, I think what OpenAI did in releasing ChatGPT to the public, I think was also a really nice move because people got to just go and experiment with it for free. Um, they got to understand the capability. It seeded discussion about various things and it put it front and center um, before products even started rolling out. And, you know, it kind of makes me wonder if you know, as a society, maybe we would have been better off if there was some kind of demo like that for, say, social media before that became widespread. And it seeded discussion in the media and in academia about, you know, like what we're having today. Um, I don't think when Facebook rolled out, there were too many people thinking about massive uh, disinformation campaigns or, you know, significant terrorist recruiting through it. Um, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe there's some voices in the wilderness, but I don't think we've had the same level of discussion, you know, 20 years ago about social media that we are today about these models. So I think that's a good thing. I think it's also a good thing in that it's getting people excited about the technology, especially in the United States where, where we're a little bit behind on STEM and K through 12. And now you got kids playing with it and talking about it. So I think that's really good as well. And I think from, you know, my perspective as a researcher, you know, it's allowing us to latch on to very interesting problems and we can direct our research toward ways that can uh, lead to tangible benefits. You know, uh, you know, our study that we did on ChatGPT, um, 
according to their webpage, OpenAI is encouraging of this kind of thing. Identify the limits of our models. I don't think they're, you know, upset about our study. Um, I, you know, what based on what they're saying, they want people to do that so they can iteratively improve. And I think that's a really um, positive thing. Yes, I do think because of all the reasons we've talked about in this conversation that, you know, we need to be smart about how we employ these things, in particular on the productization side. Um, and, you know, be careful about thinking of things like, you know, how is it integrated with the larger system? How does this change the attack surface? And how do I test that? And, um, you know, I think that's going to be really key in moving forward and avoiding, you know, something terribly catastrophic that could happen that could lead to, you know, another so-called AI winter where people don't embrace the technology because they're afraid of uh, bad things happening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so before we conclude, uh, Dr. Shakarian, one of the things, um, where can people find out about you and the work that you're doing at Arizona State? And uh, as we mentioned, social media, how can people learn more about things that you're doing and uh, your representative um, in this representative space? No, thanks for that, Sean. So we have a YouTube channel uh, that is called the Neurosymbolic Channel. And there we talk about, um, you know, limitations of uh, current approaches to machine learning and deep learning and how integrating ideas from logic to make them more explainable, modular, and uh, perhaps uh, also come up with performance guarantees uh, can help address those issues. And so this is an active area of research um, that not only us at Arizona State, but many others are engaged with. And we also um, have a website now, neurosymbolic.asu.edu, uh, that acts as a resource page, not only for the research done at Arizona State, but also we include, you know, videos and summaries and stuff of other uh, research groups as well, because we're trying to uh, increase awareness on this topic. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you for all the work that you've done and, and for your past service. Absolutely uh, fantastic. It was great talking with you, sir. And I hope we can do it again in some more research that you do. We'd love to, uh, again, have you on the podcast and uh, talk about some new issues in this space. I feel that uh, maybe this is the tip of the tip of the iceberg uh, in things of that what we'll be talking about in the future uh, as we integrate AI um, AL into many different areas, including cybersecurity. And for those, the audience, uh, again, thank you. Um, please reach out to podcast at cisecurity.org with other questions, comments, other types of features that you'd like to see. Remember to subscribe in all the usual ways. And with that, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.